Welcome everyone to another episode of Elbows Tight Podcast. It's your host Travis and John. John, how was that? Man, it was pretty good. Uh, I mean, we had a little, we had some difficulties with recording this go around. No, no telling what it is. Maybe the eighteen forest fires going on. Man, who yeah. knows? It it wasn't as smooth as my balls. That's for sure. With uh, Manscaped, you know. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Manscaped. Use code ETP twenty at checkout for free shipping and for twenty uh, percent off. John, how how is your manscaping going? I, I love the manscaped man. I, if, if you guys have not got on this bandwagon yet, I'm gonna tell you right now, you need to. Yeah, Michael Carrier, our guest today, um, he even mentions he bought a manscaped because of us. He just got a vasectomy and he said he got a gold star from his urologist for how smooth his balls were. Just a preview of what this conversation's like. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> if you guys use code ETP at 20, like I mentioned, you will get free shipping and 20% off. And their their performance package is great. Crop deodorant, weed whacker, all the stuff. It's 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 great. So, but this conversation is also very good. Michael Courier has amazing insight. Um, he's a super down-to-earth guy. I mean, it was a great conversation. We were laughing so much, and we really kind of like dig deep into into jujitsu in this one, man. I know I'd really like to try it at school after you know hearing yeah. him talk about it and yeah. the way he holds class. I was like that sounds pretty entertaining. Yeah, he he uh, he definitely he believes in in comp- uh, competing quite a bit, but he's he doesn't push it on his students. But one cool thing that he has, and well, he talks about it on the episode a little bit, is he recently posted like a, a board, a leadership board in the um, in his academy of people that compete quite a bit and like. The more you compete, the more points you get. The more submissions you get during competition equals more points and like kind of how he ranks it. And I thought that was a really interesting thing. You guys could check out his Instagram to to see the little YouTube or the inst- short the Instagram short on it. So, um, but it was a great conversation. Hope you guys like it. Let us know what you guys think about it. Uh, John, you got anything else, man? Oh uh, no, Saints won today. Hey, go Saints! <laughs> so you guys. Thank you so much for watching and listening at home. Remember, follow us on Instagram, Elbows Tight Pod, Elbows Tight on YouTube, Elbows Tight Podcast everywhere. And uh, give us a five-star review on iTunes, five-star review on Spotify, and a five-star review on Podchaser. That's a new one that we can you guys can give us a review on. The reason I ask so much is because it, it lets people know out there that this is a legitimate podcast and they will enjoy listening to it too. So thank you guys so much for at home, and uh, we'll catch you later. Peace. Peace. Like doing something, I'm still like doing something as we're like the countdown's going. I was like, we say we don't have to talk, or we, can <laughs> we just freeze. <laughs> <laughs> so, Michael Courier, what is up, man? How you doing today? I'm good, man. How are you guys? We are fantastic. It's a beautiful day outside in sunny Washington S- State. Sunny, smoky Washington. Yeah, State. we have a bunch of like wildfires going on in uh, the. I think it's the east part of the state right now, right? 18 forest fires when I checked this morning between Washington Holy and crap. Oregon. Holy crap! Man. Yeah, you might see some on your drive. Yeah, we when when it gets smoky up here, the wind just brings all the smoke. Like last yeah. night, the the moon was orange because of all the smoke and everything like that. So it was, yeah. it was crazy to see. Yeah, I spent I spent six years in Portland, and uh, so we we had some fires there. And you know, at one point, we I think I traveled out of the country and came back home. And when we landed, our car was covered in ash. You know, and yeah, uh, it gets it gets pretty scary for sure. Yeah, one year the the wildfires in California were so bad. They actually told us to like not go outside for a couple of days yeah. because the ash was so bad that they're like, "Look, it's not even safe for you to go outside and breathe." So just yeah, yeah. don't even go out there. Yeah, it, it, you would walk out to your car and it'd be painted in, in ash. And you're like, "Holy crap, man, this is crazy." So, but you're on your way to California right now. What are you going to do in California? I'm going to see uh, Splurgio. So Sergio Hernandez, he's a Barrett Yoshida black belt and uh, a pretty rad tattoo artist. So he's done a bunch of my tattoos, and so um, figured good a time as any to get some tattoos. And uh, yeah, so it'll be a six-hour drive, and then get tattooed, and then drive straight home. So a long day. Heck yeah! How do you? How do you? So I I obviously have a, a, a one or two tattoos also. Uh, how do you recover and train? I've always wanted to ask this, but you're you're a tattooed guy like me too. How do you train after getting tattooed? Do you take a couple of days off, or do you just like try to? Uh, train without using that body part. Yeah, uh, you know, 
historically, I've always, oh, sorry. That's okay. Can you hear me? You're good? I'm sorry. You can still yep. talk. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. You're good. Sorry. <laughs> I've got these fucking AirPods and my ear is cauliflowered and so it wants to fall out all the time. So, <laughs> it's a pain in the- <laughs> so uh, historically, I've taken like, you know, minimum 10 days off after getting tattooed. Uh, I'm really cautious about it. When I got my feet tattooed, it was like four days before going on a jiu-jitsu trip to Hawaii. And, uh, and so I broke all my rules. I flew to Hawaii, got off the plane, went straight to the beach, played in the ocean, trained jiu-jitsu all week. And I've got a pretty nasty scar across the tattoo. So, um, you know, now it's like I'm pretty strict about it. I stayed nice and tight. I did my neck um, last July. And that one was super scary just because, you know, lapels are on your neck. And so if you get a big scar on your foot, not a big deal. But if you have a big scarred tattoo across your throat, you look kind of like right. an idiot. So uh, the goal is to have them look pretty. Right. So when you did get your, your neck tattoo, uh, one, how was that? Because I, I, I'm trying to convince my wife to let me do my neck. But she said my mom and my wife are both like, no. Yeah. Uh, but then, two, like how long were you like comfortable? Was it the 10 days when you're like, OK, I'll, I'll go ahead and do it? Did you still have scabs on it or anything like that? Yeah. So one, it was the only tattoo I've ever gotten that I was scared of. You know, like yeah. I think I've gone into every tattoo feeling pretty confident. You know, I've got a lot of work done. And so uh, I was terrified. And, uh, it was re- honestly, it was the easiest tattoo I've ever had. Um, really? <laughs> yeah. The, the worst part, honestly, was just, I had to look up for like five hours and, uh, you know, as, as a grappler, my neck is thrashed and looking up is not my strong suit. And so, um, it was more a matter of just having to apologize to the artist for like having to like stop a second and like roll my neck out and, uh, you know, find a good comfortable place to be because, he wanted me to sit up in a chair and just kind of look at the ceiling. And, uh, that was rough. So, and then as far as healing goes, uh, I did it right before a trip to Germany to teach. And I think it was two, uh, two full weeks, uh, of no touching it. No, no training. Uh, so when I actually started training, there was no scabs on it anymore. Everything was pretty clean. And so, um, but yeah, that one, that one was going to be a big concern for me just because I didn't want to even risk anything going wrong with that one. Yeah, I got the only tattoo that I've gotten since I started jujitsu is just my hand, and yeah. uh, that like like you said, like I was a little nervous about my hand because a, a bunch of people were like, "Oh my god, the top of your hand hurts so bad." Yeah. It was I literally like just talked the entire time, and it was yeah. the so easy. It was so easy. Didn't really hurt at all until probably about the second and two and a half hours in when he started like getting in there a little oh, bit. I was like, "All right, well, that's it. starting to feel yeah. uncomfortable." Yeah. But then like for training, I just, uh, same thing. I was like, all right, well, I don't really have to worry about anything too much brushing up my hand, maybe just brushing against the mat. But I was, I was super careful. I was yeah. so nervous that I was going to rip it out and all the color and whatnot. Cause I've had a couple where I just got blank spots from scabs falling yeah, off yeah, yeah. and taking everything with it. So John, you got a couple tattoos too, right? Bro, my stuff is nothing <laughs> like your guys's. I got my first one when I was 13 and my mom oh, had to shit. sign parents permission oh my god back in like the god 1990 <laughs> you know they weren't doing all that great colorful ink and all that stuff back then his tattoos yeah. are great it's they're like, like they're like prison tats yeah yeah, yeah. he's got god smacks sun around yeah, his belly yeah, button yeah. Right that's now. not what that is yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was flatter back then it's just stretched out that's all so hey mike for those that don't know you that are listening at home or watching on youtube can you give us a little bit of a background story on who you are and how you got into jiu-jitsu and everything yeah man so uh you know for one i've uh basically been an athlete my whole life i've never really had a job Uh, i've been lucky enough to to use my my talents to make money ever since i was a kid and so um i'm from ohio and if you're five foot six and from ohio you have to wrestle it's like God wrote that down. And so uh, I wrestled for like 10 years growing up. I was also uh, a pretty high-level gymnast. Um, when I was 17, right before college, I was like ranked in the top 10 in the nation for gymnastics. Um, had an opportunity to do, do gymnastics for Penn State University, uh, but I got scared and joined the Army instead. And so uh, I served in the U.S. Army. I was a paralegal, basically worked JAG for them. And then... Um, Outside of the Army, I, I continued work as a stuntman, an acrobat. I uh, did that most of my 20s. Uh, 
and just kind of side jobs. I need to keep myself from having to punch a clock. Uh, so I think in my adult life, I had a job for about 18 months and that was it. And then, um, 2014, I transitioned to jujitsu full-time, um, just kind of fell into it. And uh, you know, I think when you mix wrestling and gymnastics, you get jujitsu. It's kind of like the perfect background for, <laughs> for grappling, you know? And so, um, you know, right away for me, I knew it was going to be a full-time thing. So I did my first tournament after about three weeks of training and got smashed, but I was hooked. And then uh, I bought my first academy. Um, I had just gotten my blue belt. I think it was about a year into training and I bought a gym. And uh, from then on, it's been just owning gyms and teaching full time. So when you when you first started jujitsu, since you had that wrestling background, did you feel like you're like, oh, man, this will be easy because I wrestle for so many years of my life? Yeah, you know, I mean, oddly enough, my first class ever, we were doing double leg takedowns. And so, like, I went into class and I felt super comfortable, like, day one. You know, I was like, oh, shit, this, this is my stuff, you know, for sure. And then, um, you know, then I quickly realized that, that there was more to it than wrestling. Um, I really think uh, in the beginning, I thought my wrestling would actually hurt my jiu-jitsu, you know, Um it, it get, kind of gave me this false sense of confidence that I knew what I was doing. Um, and then ultimately, you have to understand that in wrestling, there's no such thing as an open class match, right? Like you're, you're only ever wrestling guys your weight. And so I'm 140 pounds and uh, wrestling does not work so well when you're significantly smaller than somebody, you know? And so I, I, got, I, got, smashed. Yeah. I got smashed a lot. And so... I had to really kind of dial back what I was doing with my wrestling and just focus on being a white belt and, uh, and learning jujitsu. It was only as like a pretty advanced purple belt that I began bringing my wrestling back into my jujitsu, you know? Um, yeah, it helped me for sure. Cause I, I had, I had, I had grappled with people before. And so having that, uh, that comfort level uh, of that, of that connection and then having that comfortableness of just being, uh, physical with somebody, I was comfortable with that. So that really helped my progression. But as far as like the actual techniques and the skills I learned in wrestling, um, I don't think they, they, they didn't translate very well for me. Our professor is uh, a lifelong wrestler. He coaches wrestling now, and he's really like introduced a lot of wrestling into our jujitsu uh, when it comes to like single legs and and just these wrestling positions. And one thing that he always talks about is kind of like you just said is um, jujitsu guys don't really know what to do when they get put in a wrestling position. Like we have like these certain movement patterns that we fall back on that aren't conducive to wrestling sometimes and vice versa with wrestling to jujitsu. But he, he does like a great job of intertwining these ideas and concepts on this may be a wrestling thing, but this is how we can use it in jujitsu, like single leg defenses, uh, attacking from single legs and stuff like that. Like we just did a whole half guard series where the, we started in, we started on our back in half guard and it was all wrestling up from half guard. And it was an amazing series. I was like, Holy crap, man. And like the single leg defense now that he showed us, it's a wrestling. And I, I hit it every single time someone yeah. in my class like uh, goes for a single leg. So I'm like, oh, man, I want to I want to do more of this. And it, we're kind of seeing it now in competitive jujitsu, too, with like people hitting cradles and things like that in jujitsu. Have you noticed that? Yeah, for sure. I think that like, you know, for me, it's just important for people to understand that like um, just like with judo, you really can't do like a literal translation of wrestling for jujitsu, right? Like you have to understand that like the reaction you get in grappling or in jujitsu is much different than the reaction you would get in wrestling. So if you try to do, um, you know, a, a standard like three takedown series in wrestling, the feed will always be a belly down feed from our opponent. He's always going to try to starfish and land belly down and to avoid getting his back to the mat mm -hmm. where with jujitsu, the opposite happens, you know? And so, uh, me personally, I don't see a big advantage of getting a takedown if that takedown results in me inside of your closed guard. Um, you know, I, I basically went mm. from a neutral position to a defensive position because while in, while in your closed guard, I can only be defensive, right? Like my only offense is a product of defending your attacks and then passing your guard. And guard passing still is not an offensive action. It's a break from neutrality, right? And so um, 
it's really important we understand that and and we we direct our our wrestling or our judo towards a jujitsu feed you know and so if you can do that then it, it, it's, it's immediately applicable but that's the challenge and so um you know zach miller mm-hmm. he's he's one of my one of my black belts you guys spoke with him his big thing is wrestling up and yep. i think that when you you know when you when you play with ideas like that of um you know a big thing at our academy is we do we do a whole class based off of gtfo right and like you know that stands for i don't know if i can say it here but like get the fuck up and get the fuck no, out. You're, you're good yeah go ahead yeah and so <laughs> and so um you know we we will put you in a bad spot over and over and over again and it is uh, you know on these classes it's less about the technique and more about just being a grown-ass man and getting up you know and get to your feet and get out and so um, we use a lot of wrestling from our backs, wrestling from our feet or wrestling from our knees, rather, uh, getting out of bad spots, using wrestling transitions to get to a neutral position in a standing position and then have the fight happen from there. So do you feel drilling is undervalued in a lot of jujitsu academies that you've seen or noticed with practitioners that you've traveled around the world and work with? Do you feel like drill? I've, I always hear about drilling is like yeah. probably the most important thing. And it sounds like you dedicate a whole class just to drilling. Yeah, I mean, kind of. <laughs> so uh, I, I don't drill myself personally anything ever. And, and I, when I say that, I mean, I, I will never do like a like a 10 step sequence repeatedly. You know, so I think that when I think mm. of drilling, it's guys who are going to do, um, you know, like like a, a knee cut pass and they're going to do it with almost no resistance. And they're going to just kind of go through like what becomes kind of like a kata. Right. Like you're just going to go yeah. through it. You reset. You go through it. You reset. You know, right? so. Um, I, I don't spend any time drilling at all. And so, um, but what I do is I go into every single role with a, with an idea in my mind of like what I want to try to learn or what I want to try to implement into my game. And I allow that to fail over and over and over again. So I don't tell you what I'm trying to do. Um, if you figure it out, that's fine. I'm trying to keep it a secret, but I'm also not going to announce it to you. I'm just going to try to find what I want to learn within the role and as it fails, I have to process that data and then try again and try again and try again. And I think that for me, um, it gives me a much better understanding that two things happen there. Um, I get a realistic reaction and a realistic action from the, 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 the move I'm trying to do. And then two, it allows me to have my jiu be more conceptual uh, and not so like step by step by step. And I think that that's an important key there because as we learn techniques, they should be, um, we, we, as a coach, I have to teach you a series in a step-by-step process um, so that you can learn it that way. But when it comes time to implementation, it's your job as a student to decide which parts of that step work or which part of that technique works best for that scenario that you're currently in, right? So for instance, if I, if I have a submission that's eight steps long, um, if I start at step one, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be exactly. like, hey, hold, uh, let me get my notebook. Yeah. <laughs> but, it, but like I said, like when you first learn to do an arm bar, an arm bar can be eight steps, right? Eight, se- right? eight separate actions. If I try to only start my arm bars from step one, well, the mm-hmm. odds of them completing the step eight are very low. A guy's going to interrupt me whenever he can. And so it's my job to understand that this specific scenario that we're in feels like step three and I can start at step three and go three to eight, or I can start at step seven and go seven, eight and finish my technique. That gives me the opportunity to uh, have a higher success rate, but it also allows me to fail and not feel like I invested a ton of work into a failed technique. So uh, drilling can be important as long as it's done in a way that is productive and not just theatrics. I like that a lot. I I like drilling when it's like a warming up for the class. I yeah. like drilling, but I definitely learn better if you just let me roll and try to work through it. Yeah, yeah. In my eyes, to add on to that, to, for me, drilling right, what kind of what you mentioned is like the step by step process. To me, that's more of a, like a, a practicing the technique. You know what I mean? Like that's like, hey, here goes the technique. Now break. You go do it with your partner. Sure. And and, and in my eyes, what when I when I think of drilling, I think of Hey, we're starting like like for our. I was just talking about our half guard series. We we were starting with you're shooting for the single leg. They have a wizard. 
try to get out of it, ready to right. go. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. And that that was kind of like what I was, what I see as drilling. But I do know people like you just mentioned, where it's more more of a kata. They're they're like, you know, you're gonna start right here and only start right here. Um, and it kind of goes to like positional sparring too, right? Like, yeah. uh, um, like you're like little. Like start on their back and try to get out of it, and I kind of I think that's also really good too. But and that, I guess that kind of goes in, into sparring as well, or into drilling as well. Yeah, for sure. I think that like you know, ultimately we we have to. So I have to also understand that some students need to learn in a very step by step process, right? And I think that like uh, like my wife, for instance, she learns very systematically, and she has to drill it, and she has to go through and rep everything out, or else she can't really implement it later on you know so um like everything with jujitsu it's very personal right like i mean and, and that's why i stuck with jujitsu for so long is because nobody ever told me exactly what to do they gave me this idea and, and ultimately if you can implement it and make it work in your own way then it's not wrong you know so um i think what happens a lot of times people come into the classroom and they expect to just like learn very like a to b you know or like read a book and they, they can do jiu-jitsu and the reality is like it's my job as a coach to give you ideas um but you have to get with your partner and figure out what makes it work for you and kind of figure out your own game and everybody has to be uh an individual or else they're not going to really grow beyond just knowing techniques and i see that a lot where we have you know i've had students in the past that can demonstrate 100 techniques perfectly but they can't roll to save their lives, you know, because they never have the ability to understand that you're in a fight uh, or you're in a match and you're in a grappling match and there is no script and, and things are not going to go as planned. And if you can't deviate from a plan, uh, then you're doomed. Yeah. And it's, it's so interesting too, because when it comes to technique warmups, all, all these ideas and uh, concepts behind jujitsu, there's, there's so many, there's, I feel like there's not a lot of gray area with some people. It's like either drilling is 100% necessary or no, they have to practice technique for one hour straight and then we'll go into live spar. You know what I mean? Like there's, I feel like everyone has their own yeah, opinion yeah. and that's what makes jujitsu so, so unique in my eyes, right? Like if you go to like a Taekwondo studio, they practice pretty much and do the same things from what I've seen. Oh, as you travel, right? Yeah. There's it's, it's a good lee or a, a good standard wherever you go. But when you go to like a jujitsu academy, I mean, I've never been to one that does it the same exact way we do it, and we don't do anything special. You know what I mean? Yeah, I remember uh, when we were a couple years into this, we we thought it. Remember when we found out you couldn't roll at some gyms? Yeah, if you were a white belt, and I was like, what? Like, how did they learn? I, I couldn't believe it because we'd been rolling from the start. Yeah, we'd been in for a couple years. Yeah. And I was like, I don't, I don't know how I would learn if, if I couldn't roll. I've also heard of people not uh, schools not allowing white belts to roll with white belts also because uh, yeah. the safety hazards, obviously, that come along with two white belts, like rams locking horns. You know what I mean? Do you have any, <laughs> do you have any rules in your academy that's like that? No, you know, I mean, we're, we're quite the opposite. We, uh, you know, I, I want you guys rolling day one. Uh, we do heel hooks at white belt. Um, all submissions are elite or all, all submissions are allowed in my class. Uh, you can neck crank, you can wrist lock, you can ankle, you know, you can heel hook. Um, if I can get you to tap, then I'm, I'm giving you a thumbs up, you know? So like, and, and that's just reality. But I think that like, it's important that we, so I always preface that with one big rule of my academy. Right. And here's the rule. If you get hurt, it's always your fault. Always. The, there's only one exception, right? The one exception is uh, you tap, I don't let go, and then it's my fault, right? Um, but no matter what, besides that one exception, if you get hurt, it's your fault, right? Like, so if a guy's trying to pass your guard and he knees you in the eye, that's your fault, right? Like, our number one rule is keep ourselves safe. And so uh, if I can't keep myself safe against a spazzy white belt, then I shouldn't be teaching jiu-jitsu, you know? And so, uh, and I say this because as a 140-pound dude, like, there are many things in a match that I would like to do to you, but I can't because the risk of you injuring me is too high, right? Like, not from a submission, but just from the, like, the violent act of a roll. Like, if I get, a, like, a college wrestler and I sweep him, I know he's going to spring back into me right? That, that spring back into me might break my arm. And so I've got to play this game of like, do I, is, is it 
what's what's the action reaction look like you know and so as long as you communicate that with your students and you can have them do whatever they want because they know that it's their job to acknowledge that they are getting into a bad spot and then they can play this game of do i continue on with my defense or my escape or do i tap out right neither answer is right or wrong um me personally i let things go way too long like uh, both when I'm competing and when I'm rolling with friends, like, I want you to know that, like, if, if I tap out, like you were going to kill me, you know, <laughs> me, there, there's no, there's no middle ground. Right. And so, uh, but that comes from trust also, you know? And so, uh, but yeah, I think that like the biggest hurdle we have with all of these ideas in jujitsu is that like, we don't talk about things. We don't have communication with our students. And so, uh, we try to make communication like hugely important in my academy. You know, uh, every class where we're giving some kind of behind the scenes conversation and not just getting into our role. Okay. So what I figured what we're, well, we'll jump in at is, uh, competing, especially since you just, uh, posted that reel about how you have that board of your top competitors yeah, in your yeah, school, yeah. which I think is super cool. And actually it's kind of, it kind of made me think like, man, if our school would have done that, would I compete? Because that's a pretty cool idea, right? Everyone likes a little bit of camaraderie. I think so. So, yeah. so uh, are, you obviously have competed in, I mean, literally everything that's probably <laughs> jujitsu related. Yeah. I feel like like your Instagram profile is like you have to click a view more a couple times <laughs> to see how many different things that you've competed in. Yeah. Uh, how, how do you feel about competing for – for like the general population of your gym, because uh, we heard a crazy uh, stat that you know seventy percent of martial artists never compete. Yeah, you know what I mean. So how how do you feel about competition? Yeah, I think that like I don't know, man. I always look at it like this: if you if you enjoy playing basketball, right, you go to the basketball court on a Sunday, you play pickup games of basketball. You don't care if you get better at basketball. You're not trying to make the NBA. You're not even trying to do well. You're just having fun with your friends and playing basketball. Like, I think you should be able to do jiu-jitsu the same way, right? You should be able to go in there and just say, hey, you know what? This is a, it's a fun hobby for me. Uh, I don't really care if I'm getting better or not. Like, I love the time. I love the camaraderie. I love my team. Uh, and, and I like being here, right? So I always preface it by that. Like, you're completely okay, never competing, never even giving it 100% in practice. Like, just be a hobbyist. Like, that's totally cool, right? Um but I think that, like, if you want to really push yourself and if you want to train hard in the academy, you really have to compete, right? Like, what competition does is it helps us to better separate our teammates from our competitors, right? If you don't compete, then you always go into practice fighting your friends. Uh, and then you don't have an outlet for, like, a real aggressive role, right? Like, we roll pretty hard at my academy. Um, and I tell my guys like, Hey, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to roll hard today, but I still see the guys who, um, end up injuring people in the Academy or they just get too aggressive. They tone themselves way down when they can go compete and then be able to like not roll with a friend, you know, and like go full on and like really have an outlet for that. Then they come back to the Academy and it completely changes how they train because now they have training partners that they are fixing errors in their game they're fixing holes in their game and then they're going to ultimately improve the jiu-jitsu at a faster rate because of it so did you start competing in jiu-jitsu uh was it like a natural progression because like you said you start you did after three weeks like it was you're like is that just because of your competitive mindset from you know wrestling gymnastics and everything like that did you just have that like that that inner desire to always test yourself yeah, you know, it was a really mixed thing. We're like, um, when I competed that first event, uh, you know, when I wrestled, wrestling is like 100% forward aggression, right? Like, it's just go, go, go. I'm trying to kill this dude. And, uh, you know, I've also competed in like skate competitions and like snowboard competitions and like gymnastics. And like, I've been a competitor my whole life. Like, everything I've done, I've taken like to the extreme and like tested myself like in competition. But that first event, in jujitsu, I realized that like, I didn't have like a kill mentality. Like I didn't see red. I didn't, I didn't want to go out and hurt anybody. It was kind of the opposite where like I had a, my, you know, second or third match of the day was against 
um, like a young 18 year old kid. And I vividly remember like looking at him in the middle of the match and just thinking to myself, he wants this way more than I do. Like, <laughs> I, I just don't have it in me to like kill this guy, you know? And like, so I had to go back and then, uh, you know, I, I competed once as a white belt. Uh, I competed once as a blue belt. I did very well, uh, you know, as a blue belt in that one event. And then um, I really had no plans on ever competing again. And then we kind of decided that we were going to leave Oregon and move to Arizona. And uh, I knew that in doing so, I would be opening an academy on my own. Um, the academy I had in Oregon, I had a black belt uh, co-owner. And so I had like the safety net of like opening an academy. And so when I opened my academy in Arizona, I knew I was going to be my, you know, by myself. I was opening an academy in a town that had never had jiu-jitsu before. Um, and so early into my purple belt, I knew this was going to happen. And so I thought, man, how do I, how do I give myself some legitimacy uh, in the sport? I know I've got to give somebody something they can Google and say, okay, who's this guy that's teaching jiu-jitsu in Fountain Hills? And so, um, you know, I got really lucky. I, I got connected with Chael Sonnen, and they put me on uh, Submission Underground 2, uh, which was headlined by John Jones and Dan Henderson. So mega event. Um, that was my first pro grappling match. I was a purple belt for a couple of weeks, and I went and did that. And then um, they loved me, and they kept having me back on. And so that really was like the, uh, like the opening, like the door opening for me. Uh, once I had a couple of submission undergrounds under my belt, then I got calls from Eddie Bravo and then World Series of Fighting. And uh, it kind of all fell together. Um, but I really didn't have like this moment where I was like, man, I love competing. It was more like, I have to compete just long enough to give myself some credibility. And then I could not compete, you know? And um, somewhere along the way, I, I learned to love it. And I started having uh, a lot of fun competing. Um, I didn't get nervous any longer. I was just having a good time. And, um, you know, now I'm kind of in this in-between zone where uh, I'm getting paid to travel the world and teach jujitsu. Uh, and I don't have to compete anymore. Uh, I still want to compete. I, I, I'm sure I will still. Um, but if I, get a, if I get two phone calls the same day and one's to go to Europe and teach or the other one's to go to Mexico and get smashed in the face, I'm probably going to go to Europe and teach. So we had we had a, a viewer question uh, that he's looking. His name is Mike, and he's uh, looking to start an academy. And someone that has a very successful academy, this would be uh, a good good thing to ask you. It's kind of a three part question. He's and it uh, he started off with, "How did you start your own gym? Uh, what startup capital was necessary, and what would you have done differently?" Yeah. So. Um I got really lucky, you know, like uh, I've had, I've had this, this habit of surrounding myself with really uh, successful people who are much better humans than I am. Um, and, and, and I've always kind of rode the curtails, all these people around me. And so uh, I was, I was literally a white belt or a new blue belt. And um, we, my academy was in the back of a Taekwondo school. And uh, there was some tension there. The Jitsu was doing better than Taekwondo. And that really irritated the Taekwondo master guy. Uh, he didn't like that his shit was failing and ours was crushing it, you know? And so we had a guy, uh, his name's Ned. He's like 75 years old. He's a purple belt at the time. He's a black belt now. Um, he was a very successful businessman. And he and I just had lunch one day and I was like, hey, you know, like things aren't going well. Um, we should open an academy. And um, we we talked about it a little bit. And then we brought uh, my black belt guy, my, my coach in. And the three of us partnered together. Uh, the black belt and myself both had zero dollars. Like we had no money to invest. Um, but I had all the time in the world, you know, like uh, I've always been able to not really work. And so um, we said, hey, you know, if, if you front the capital, then we will pay it back in sweat equity. And so we, we had a couple, you know, hangups where all of our people were in a contract with the Taekwondo school. And so... We ended up, uh, it was a total of $20,000 for initial investment. Um, and 12000 of that 20000 went to the Taekwondo school just to break everyone out of their contract. Yeah. So we, you know, that was a huge hit for us. Uh, but the reality is for $8,000, we were able to buy mats, uh, rent a space, pay the first month's rent, and then open the business. You know, so uh, it's, for me, it's incredible incredibly important that we always open an academy 
uh, undersized and under budget, right? Um, I have a good friend that opened an academy. He spent $50,000 on his initial build out, another $50,000 the first two years in just paying increased overhead and not enough students. So he took a $100,000 loan out of his retirement uh, to, to keep his academy afloat. But the same person couldn't roll paint on the wall. Like, like he, he hired out for everything, you know? So uh, where me, like, you know, I, I, I worked briefly as an interior decorator. Um, like I have like design background. I've been building things my whole life. And so uh, I could do everything myself. And so for $8,000, we ended up buying, uh, I drove actually up to, uh, is it Snohomish? Yeah. yeah. You guys? I drove to Snohomish yep. in the middle of winter because there was a, uh, like a CrossFit gym that wanted to do MMA that closed and, or they, they wanted to transition back to just weightlifting and CrossFit. And they had a 30 foot by 30 foot wrestling mat that they were selling on Craigslist. And so, uh, I got, I rented a trailer and drove like 12 hours in the snow to get there. Uh, it was <laughs> crazy. It took me so long. It was so sketchy. And, uh, I got there and it was one 30 foot by 30 foot chunk, like not segments. It was just one oh, big wow. mat. And so, I had to sit there with a box cutter and cut it in three sections and roll it up and put it in the trailer and drive it back, you know, but we ended up paying $800 for that, you know, and, and that was enough mass to cover the whole gym. The gym was only, I think, 800 square feet, you know, but wow. we ha I have a photograph. Uh, the first class we had, we had 26 members and 26 people and 800 square feet is crazy, you know, and so, you know, but what we did is we, we were part of an industrial complex. They had both offices and uh, like warehouses for rent. We told the guy, hey, we want to rent an office for, you know, $800 for 800 square feet. But as soon as we're ready, we want to have the option to move into a warehouse and keep that same lease and just kind of move our shit across the hallway. And so we did five months in the 800 square foot like little unit. And then we moved over to a 2400 square foot unit. And uh, the gym is still there today. Nice. Yeah. So, and then we ended up, we, so ended up being about a $7,000 portion for each of the three partners. Um, we paid that 7,000 back to Ned, uh, in about a year, 10 months to a year. Wow. And then we were like, we had our investment back Right. And so, um, I decided I was going to move. And so another year goes by and I sold my third of the gym back to them and I sold it for 20,000. And so I took $0, turned it into $7,000 and turned it into 20,000 in 24 months. And then that, that, that 20,000 paid for my current gym now. So what have we have done differently in that whole scenario? You know, I, I, I'm still learning this. I'm still making the same mistake is that I don't work well with others. Um, like, <laughs> and like, that's just, I mean, it's funny, man. Like I think that I have such a unique military experience because um, you know, I was stationed in, in, uh, in, in Michigan and I was part of an MP unit and out of like 300 soldiers there, um, only three of us stayed back for two deployments. And, uh, I literally spent my whole service in an office by myself, just punching paper, you know? So like, I never had like any camaraderie or no, like no, no, no soldier brother, nothing like that. And so, um, you know, whether that plays into it or if it's just part of who I am, uh, I just... I have a hard time working with other people. You know, I think that like, I've always been a solo sport person. Um, I've always done solo business ventures and uh, you know, working with partners can be really challenging. So that, that was hard for me. Um, you know, having said that I've got two partners at my current gym, you know, and uh, I still probably would have said if I wasn't traveling as much as I am now, I would have preferred to keep it a sole proprietorship for sure. Well, it's good you know that, though, right? I mean, it's it's good to know exactly how you are. It's got to make it easier. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that that's one of the things that I've been really good at my whole life is, like, you know, I, I always do what I want to do, like, period. And, like, like I, I, I mean, I will help you out. I'll do anything for you, but I will absolutely always put myself first. So uh, I, I think that it's an important trait that gets so frowned upon for some reason of, like, this idea that, like, you can – you can support yourself and get what you want out of life, but all of a sudden, like, you're a selfish asshole for doing it. Like, that's crazy. Right? <laughs> I totally get it. Totally get it. Like, I put myself in a spot where I can help people all the time now. You know, like, because I'm selfish, I have an academy. That academy allows, 
you know, military vets in cost to come train for free or, you know, or guys who just can't afford it. Like I can help them. I can give them, I can give back because I put myself first, not in spite of it, you know? Yeah. That's a good way to look at it too. Hindsight 2020, most people will be like, like, Oh no, you know, like you just mentioned, like you gotta, you gotta help people along the way as much as you can. It's like, well, I don't know, man. Like I feel the same way. Like if it's detrimental to me succeeding, then how can I help someone in the long run? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if, 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 if it's not going to work out for me, then what, what's the whole point? Like, for sure. Bro, it's like watch, it's like watching uh, the country, right? Uh, yeah. We give all that foreign Absolutely. aid money and I'm like, Jesus, let's get our shit in order first <laughs> before we keep giving no. billions everywhere else. hundred yeah. percent, right. man. And like, but, right. but I go back to like my mom, my mom will give you, if you ask my mom for $5 and she has three, she'll find a way to find five, you know? But she's been poor her whole life and she struggles all the time, you know? And it's like, then you get dudes like, you know, like Elon Musk, who was selfish and made his billions. That dude fucking gives away hundreds of millions of dollars a year in like aid. And like, he actually helps people, you know? So like, right. so people want to bash on him for being a billionaire, but they overlook the fact that he's giving literally hundreds of millions of dollars to like charity every year, you know? And like, you, 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 it, it's this like, we as Americans especially have this like short-sighted view of it of like, I want to have that instant gratification of saying I help, but like your, your instant help is meaningless as opposed to like a long-term like strategy that will actually benefit people, you know? Yeah. Some kind of fundamental change yeah, would be way better. For sure. hundred mm -hmm. percent. Yeah. Yeah. So I got to ask, I watched some of your videos, man. You are super flexible. Are yeah. you in some yoga or is that just like the gymnastics? You're still carrying that stuff. It's weird, man. Like I've never done yoga, like not a single class, like not one class have I done yoga. And uh, uh, I don't even like stretch that much, really. You know, like I think that like just being a gymnast, like, you know, the, the big emphasis in like men's gymnastics especially is like your, your strength throughout a large range of motion. Like you can't just be strong and you can't just be flexible. You got to be strong and flexible, you know? So, um, yeah, it's weird, man. I'm 41 years old. I still, I, I can drop down do the splits. I can, you know, fold in half. Uh, I just have never felt like it's gone away. It's, it's super weird. You know, I also like, what? if I sit and try to stretch like on a mat, like I don't look flexible at all. And then if I'm rolling, I just relax my body and I'll just let the dude fucking put my foot behind my head. It doesn't bother me at all. So, Part of it's mental, part of it's like physical and just knowing like what your body can do and knowing what your body's capable of doing and just allowing it to happen. Well, I was super fucking jealous watching it. I was like, God damn, I can't struggling to touch my toes. I got to pull on my gi pant leg and shit, get my feet up. It's like, damn, I wish my parents would have had me in some shit like that when I was younger. It's funny, So man. you mentioned that. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. It's funny that, you know, I, I would never make, I have a 10 year old son. I would never make him do any sport, but I'll tell you that. I have been a successful athlete in every sport I've done because of my gymnastics foundation. Like mm. it's such a, like just knowing how to keep your, I mean, I've been in motorcycle crashes. I've never broken a bone, never had any major injuries, never had surgery, you know, like, and I think it all goes back to like knowing your body and like being physically fit and like strong enough to handle it. You know, uh, we often will wonder why we're getting so injured in jujitsu. And it's because our bodies are fucking jello, you know, and we got to be fit and like strong enough to handle the daily violence of just rolling, you know. And so, uh, yeah, man, gymnastics was like just an incredible foundation for, for who I am. Uh, I, I, I thank my parents every day for that. I saw on your, your TikTok, or not your TikTok, your Instagram that um, you're about 145 pounds, you said. Typically, you're the smaller guy yeah, at yeah. your academy or when you roll with people like that. Um I saw something that uh, it was a bigger gentleman and he was talking about he doesn't roll differently with small people. Yeah. He's like, he's like small people should know how to deal with a larger person. How do you feel about a size discrepancy in jujitsu? Do you feel that it's someone's more responsibility more than the others to ensure that they're, they're both safe or is it, Hey, technique, technique, you know what I mean? No, I, I, I said before, man, I think that like, Number one goal of our, our number one responsibility is keeping ourselves ourselves safe at all times, right? So like, um, but I tell every big guy, you know, I, I roll all over the world and I get massive dudes and I'm like, don't roll for me, right? Like, I'm not going to go slower for your fat ass. Like, I'm not going to be like, <laughs> like, right? Like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to eliminate true. my attributes to suit you. 
So you can't eliminate your attributes to suit me. And so um, there are times when I'll say no to a role, you know, like I just, there are certain people, certain bodies that like, I don't think either of us are going to benefit from the role, right? Like he's going to be awkward around me and maybe try to go too light or just going to smash. I'm going to be too quick for him and it's going to be just like a non-productive role, you know? And so uh, I'm completely okay with saying no to a round. Uh, But I definitely tell every big guy I see and roll with, like, don't be nice to me. You know, like, do not, like, go easy on me. Don't be light on me. It's my job to learn how to deal with it, you know? The caveat is, um, and this goes for all size people, if I give you extreme pressure with no way to escape the pressure, then I'm an asshole, right? Meaning, like, if I go neon belly and my only goal is to drive you straight down into the mat, then I'm an asshole, right? But if I give you directed pressure from neon belly to get a response out of you, and that response allows you to deviate from the, the, the immediate threat, and I can utilize that deviation, then it's good jujitsu. Right. So like just doing shoulder pressure into somebody's chin uh, for no reason other than to cause pain, you're an asshole. Right. But if I give you shoulder pressure and you turn away from me to give me back exposure, then that's productive pressure that I encourage. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I love how everyone always goes to neon belly because everyone like some people online like neon belly's not that bad. I'm like. Bullshit, man. Like, <laughs> like that shit is yeah. terrible. Man. Something needs to move. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> but speaking of big guys, uh, John, what what's going on now in the world of sports? Ooh, football is back. <laughs> We're back to seeing Mahomes sling beautiful balls all over the field, and your friends at Manscaped are here to help you sling your beautiful balls all season long. With Manscaped state-of-the-art tech, we'll have your weapon looking more loaded than the AFC West. (laughs) Football may be rough, but your balls don't care, as long as you're Manscaped. Join the 6 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped by going to manscaped.com for 20% off and free shipping with the code ETP20. That's right, and that quarterback, we got the Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer and a wildly vet who makes sure that the unit is running smooth and scoring nonstop. nonstop. Jesus, man, this stuff is so funny. With proprietary advanced skin-safe technology, the Lawnmower limits mistakes and protects the balls. Plus, it's waterproof, so the weather conditions are no issue. I gotta, you know what made Tom Brady great? Go ahead, what'd you say? I was going to say, I, I got to tell you guys, speaking of land, or, uh, Manscaped, I was watching your yeah. podcast, um, on Thursday, I had a vasectomy, and what? because of you, I bought that lawnmower. And yeah. I, my my uh, my urologist gave me a big old high five, and he said, "Man, you are manscaped." So you guys are selling that shit. See, that's just legit. See, those that use it, they're like, "It, it is good. You got to get it." You know what? Fuck this. That's the end of the ad. Yeah, you know, that, that was it. Let's let's go ahead and just say uh, this has got a Super Bowl winning roster. <laughs> Don't take my words for. For it, go to manscaped.com and get 20% off of free shipping with code ETP20. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com when you use code ETP20. Manscaped for turning your players into an MVP. Oh, my God. That, that was the Good best job. one I've ever done. Good job. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well now we'll go back to the actual seriousness. <laughs> so you just recently did that six-week trip through Europe, yeah. right? And... uh I kind of wanted to get your point of view on the differences between people in other countries as practitioners and then uh, practitioners in America. Do, do you feel there is a difference? And if so, what is it? Yeah, I mean, there's a substantial difference. I mean, I, I did that last trip was six weeks. It was 10 different countries, 12 seminars. Um, so I get to meet a lot of different people, all walks of life. And, um, you know, what really surprised me, uh, and I was super ignorant to this, is uh, Lucha Libre is massive in Europe. And uh, first thing I thought was Lucha Libre. And I'm like, cool, they're just Mexican wrestlers. But no, it's like, it's Lucha Libre, right? And so you'd have these guys who were Lucha Libre brown belts, but a you know, jiu-jitsu white belt. And they're like, fucking great, you know? And so, um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's a much different style. I think that um, from what I found in Europe, it's a very defensive style. Uh, where like Americans are pretty offensive. I think we can see that through our culture all together. <laughs> but like we, uh, we're, we're more attacking in the rounds uh, where most of the Europeans that I roll with have a very strong defensive foundation. 
and that really is like where they peak, you know. Um, I think the overall level uh, is a little bit less than what we have in the States. Having said that, I think that like the top 5% of the guys who are, are grappling in Europe are like right there with all of our guys. You know, there's just a big stretch between the best guys and the average guys. So what you, where do you prefer to do your, your seminars when you do the BJJ Globetrotters? Do you like staying in America or do you like the six-week-long trips? Because, I mean, like you mentioned, like if you didn't travel so much, you could have a, a more presence in your school. Yeah, I think that like, you know, I, I grew up so poor and I grew up in like a small, you know, small place. And like, um, you know, so for me, even the thought of having a passport was like unheard of. And so um, – I'm still riding the high of like saying I'm going to Europe and, you know, regardless of like what the quality of instruction or the, 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 the gyms, uh, gyms are a little bit, you know, a little bit less uh, done up than they are in the States. Um, it's just, for me, it's just so much fun to travel and like see all these places I haven't seen before. Um, I just lucky enough that like grappling gets to take me there, you know? So um, I still like to teach here in the U S uh, but I've had, I've had a great reception in, in Europe, and uh, the places have just been beautiful. So uh, I'm I'm still loving it. Uh, what what was the the catalyst in your life that made it to where you can now do what you do as, as in your academy and life and whatnot? Where where was the turning point for you? Yeah, I mean, I think that like you know, like everything else, like life is always a product of like our experiences and like what we can have. Um, and, and what we can put together at, at any given time. So, um, I had this really, you know, this is kind of a, a reoccurring theme in my life where things just happen at the right time for me. And, uh, I got linked up with the BJJ Globetrotters and, uh, I, I did their camp in Arizona. It's a fantastic group of people. Um, they host jiu-jitsu camps all over the world and, uh, they're incredibly fun, like super good time. And, uh, Christian, the guy who runs it, he just, I guess, liked me and uh, invited me to come to more camps in Europe. And so uh, it was a big investment in myself because they don't cover travel or anything. And so, uh, but it's a giant networking platform. And so I would go to Germany and there'd be, you know, 250 students there. Uh, We're teaching a seminar to 250 people. And when I would leave, I'd get, you know, 30 messages from guys who, you know, a lot of black belts come to these. Maybe they have it, their own academy somewhere in Europe and say, hey, you know, will you come out and do a seminar? And so uh, the first couple of trips, they were pretty, you know, costly on my, on my, on my side. And uh, after that, now when I travel, I'll do one or two camps, but I'll do, you know, a dozen seminars from people that I met at the camp, you know? So yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an investment in yourself. So meeting up with the Globetrotters was like life-changing. And then on top of that, uh, I had a guy join my academy like 18 months ago, two years ago, and uh, he works for American Airlines. And he was like, hey, I can get you cheap oh, flights. Oh, nice. You know, and so I'm flying round trip to Europe for like $400. And uh, wow. yeah, and so and I'm usually flying business class or first class. So uh, it's like great flights. And uh, and so I trade him private lessons for flights. So it was just this crazy scenario in which like I sent a random email to Christian uh, funny story. I saw a post from somebody on Facebook. I don't use Facebook very often, so this story could be totally inaccurate. But the way I, <laughs> the way I remember it is I saw a post and they were saying, hey, we're looking for instructors for our Arizona camp. I'm like, hey, I live in Arizona. I'll do that. And so I emailed Christian. It was like, you know, support at globetrotters.com. Like, I didn't know Christian. I didn't know who they were at all. I said, hey, uh, you know, here's my, here's my resume. Here's what I've done. Uh, I live in Arizona. I'd be happy to coach at your camp. He replied back and he said, no, thank you. And, <laughs> and he was like, he was cool though, because he was like, you know what? We only hire people we know. And like, I thought that was incredible. Like, I thought that was like super respectful of like, Hey, you know what? Like, I don't know you, man. Like, I'm not going to let some random person come into my group of people and, and start teaching them, you know? And so uh, I immediately liked, liked him. And then <laughs> like two or three days go by. And he messaged me on, on, on Messenger. And he was like, hey, do you want to do like a quick interview? And we just talked for like a half an hour, like not even about jujitsu, just kind of bullshit. And he was like, all right, you're in. And then uh, it was crazy because like I, I had to do combat jujitsu uh, in Cancun. 
Uh, I landed back at home on Monday. The camp started Monday. And uh, my eye, I still had like glue holding my eye together. Uh, I couldn't see out of my left eye at all. Like I was a mess. So I went there and I'm like at this camp. And then I had to go to do submission underground on Friday. So I was like doing this camp between two big shows. And uh, I really just kind of half-assed the camp. Like I wasn't all into it. Um, I was really scared that my eye was going to come open because it was glued shut. And then they wouldn't let me compete on Saturday, you know, in, in Portland. And so I was like super careful. And I'm like, man, I fuck, I just totally fucked this up. You know, like it wasn't my best showing. And uh, whatever I did, it worked. Because he was like, he sent me an email. And he's like, hey, you know, where else do you want to go? And I'm like, I'll go, <laughs> like, I'll go everywhere. And so I did like 13 camps in like 15 months. Uh, so just like stayed crazy busy and, and went after it, you know? So um, I think that just being, you know, it, it's easy to say I get lucky and, I, and I'm in the right place at the right time, but like, that's cool when it happens once, but something I'm doing is good because it's happened my whole life. You know, I've just been able to capitalize on like good, good connections with people and, uh, my sets and skills have lined up with what was necessary in that moment. And it's just been fucking great. Well, you know, a part of that too is accepting that opportunity. You know, a lot of people you'll, you'll get those opportunities in life, but it's a big commitment to just take that, right? Yeah. Cause you're comfortable with what you know. So seizing that opportunity is a big part of that. Man, I've, I've never been afraid to say yes. You know, like I say yes to everything. And like, if I fail, like I'm, I'm completely comfortable failing, you know, like, it's never bothered me. I mean, I was building motorcycles and working on classic cars and like my friends would ask me how I learned it. And I'm like, I just fucking, I fucked everything up. And like, <laughs> you know, like I, I, I got on YouTube and I fixed it. No big deal. You know, or I fucked it up so bad that I went to a mechanic and they fixed it for me. But like I tried, you know, like I, I'm, I'm going to say yes to every opportunity, man. Like it's crazy. I feel like I'm 41 years old. I'm like halfway through this thing. And uh, for all we know, this is all we get. Like, we get one trip. And, like, I just couldn't imagine looking back and being like, man, I was so cautious, you know. Uh, I, I'd much rather say I fucked everything up. I, I ruined everything. Uh, I tried. <laughs> and, like, I just couldn't I, I just couldn't do the right things. But I tried them all, you know. Yeah, you, you bring it up, failure. And I watched like a lot of YouTube videos, like John was mentioning earlier, and on there you have that uh, what is it EBI where you lost in overtime that you you put on your YouTube channel. I thought that was so interesting to me because a lot of people don't want to put their failures out there, yeah. especially self publishing. Sure. You know what I mean? Like like hey, this is I I I lost this. It's okay, but it was a good match. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Um, what? Why do you think people are so afraid of showing nothing but successes? You know what I mean? Like yeah. we have like this such this like stigma in social media and you know Instagram is always the hottest techniques or always the best looking things, yeah. you know what I mean? And like people are afraid to admit like you just said like I no I fucked up. Like I complete no, that was I did horrible. You know what I mean? Why do you think that is? I think people are just weak like mentally. I think that like you know, if you let any doubt creep in, people will let it like consume them. You know, we're like, dude, I fight, I fight good guys. Like I'm not out there like losing at Naga, you know, like, <laughs> like, it's not you know, and if I do like the dude fucking, he bested me. Like I look at it, man. Like, could you imagine, could you imagine if like Michael Jordan loses a basketball game one in like 116, he plays a season, played in a season and like, he cried about it and like bitched and moan. Like, no, you, you gotta just like, all right, I, I made mistakes. My, you know, we, we can do better the next time. And so it's like. Dude, I'm, I'm stoked. Like, I'm so happy about life that, like, man, I'm so happy for the guys that beat me. Like, this is cool. Like, that was fucking rad. You beat me. Like, not saying that, like, I'm hard to beat, but I'm just saying, like, I'm genuinely happy for them. You know, like, David Weintraub smashed my face in, you know? And, like, I was smiling and laughing the whole time. And, like, I still, like, if he makes a post on Instagram, I like his post, man. Like, I, I drop into his DMs all the time. Like, I want to see him blow up. I want to see him succeed. And so, like, I just don't know how that – I don't see how me having a negative experience from losing benefits anything, you know? Like, it, it just, it's just something that happens. Like, we – especially when you're fighting, like, professionally. You know, when you're grappling on the professional scene, like, everybody's good. Everybody's amazing, you know? And, like, everybody loses. And so uh, – watch me watch me lose it's totally cool like i promise you i'm smiling the whole time like 
man, I'm so lucky to be doing this. I started this so late in life and like to get the opportunity to go and, and have matches on fight pass and have matches on flow grappling. Like that's crazy, you know? So uh, I'm not saying I'm like just happy to be a part of it. Like I still want to win, but sometimes you just lose and, and, and it's not the end of the world. Looking back at like how far you've came and like you've mentioned it multiple times, you know, you grew up poor and, and whatnot, like looking back at where you started to where you are now, what does that feel like? It's cool, man. I mean, like, it's funny, like, uh, I, I, I have a, a, a Rolex, right? I wear it every day. Um, my watch costs more than the house I grew up in. And like, that's so surreal that like, I came from a spot where like, I have so many friends who just never made it out, you know? And like, um, it wasn't easy for me, like joining the military was scary. And then even like, you know, joining the army isn't a, isn't a, a success route at all. Like I got out and I was dumped right back into society and like, what the fuck do I do now? You know, but I picked up and I left and I left everybody I knew. Um, I cut my entire family off. I don't talk to anyone, but you know, my mom is that's it. And like, cause they're all just shitty people. And so, uh, you know, I, I'll never lose that. Like I said, I, I love that I can look down at something so silly as like this frivolous watch and like know that like that, that literally could buy the house I grew up in. And like, I made it out of there and now I just casually wear it, you know, like it was not easy. I spent, you know, a long time like homeless and living on friends' couches and like just bouncing around and trying to find my way in life. Um, and I fail way more than I succeed, but, um, it just, I just couldn't imagine like settling and like just letting it be, you know, like my friends aren't happy. Like my, my, my high school friends are not happy with their lives. And, uh, but they're not uncomfortable enough to make giant changes, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like people are so afraid of failing. Like we talked about earlier, they just like, they're just, they just stick with what's comfortable. Like you mentioned, yeah. John. Yeah. And you know, it's funny cause you know, we don't control a lot in life. A lot of it we don't control. The one thing we can control is the way we respond to things, especially as they happen. So you just got to do it. It's the only thing we really can't control. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's relatively impossible to have dramatic change without dire consequences. Right. And like, I think that that like, that's so much about like us as a culture, like us as a country too, where like, we would be like, just, just uncomfortable enough to like be stable, you know, but like, it's a constant settling. It's a constant, like, yeah, things could be better, but they probably get worse before they got better. And people aren't willing to take that risk, you know? So, I said, fuck that, man. Like, I can't, I can't live like this. And uh, I just took risks. So on, on our show, we like to ask the, the, a question because we kind of try to aim for this podcast to have ideas and topics that kind of are relatable to brand new practitioners. And what our question we always ask is, if you could give um, one piece of advice to a brand new white belt, what would it be? Man, I, I think just, you know, it, it, again, the, the, the silly, like the, the easy answer is just enjoy it, right? Like have fun. And, and, and I will tell you that the guys who are the most successful, guys and girls, are the ones that come in and they're not shy about it. Like they just get after it. You know, they're not timid. They're not afraid to get like embarrassed out there. They just get after it. You know, like those are the people who have the most success. Um, and then like, I guess after getting through that, my biggest point of advice is, um, Every class that we teach should be received two ways, right? So like if I'm teaching you how to do an arm bar from guard, uh, a good student is going to learn how to do that arm bar, but they're also going to learn how to, how to defend the arm bar, right? So if, if I teach you all the things you need to accomplish a perfect arm bar, usually receiving the defensive end too, getting two classes for one. Yeah, that's that's a a lot of people will tell us you know just enjoy it, but it's their their ideas of what it looks like to enjoy it is is a little bit different. Yeah. Um, you know, some people are like enjoy it by competing or enjoy it by setting goals and hitting those goals or going with friends or you know what I mean, like lowering your expectations of of what that you're actually wanting to do in jujitsu. You know what I mean? Because yeah. nothing nothing's worse than setting a high bar 
for yourself and then you never hit that bar because you're just expecting too much of your own journey you know what i mean like you really have to sit down and be like like for me i have two kids i have three kids two under two right a full-time job a 401k you know what i mean i work for the government so i have long hours sometimes and so for me my days of being the killer in class super athletic are gone like yeah. and I'm okay with that. I, I have to change my goals, unfortunately. It doesn't mean I do, I have any less fun in jujitsu, but it's just now I'm just like you know what I'm just gonna show up and I'm gonna do the technique and I'm gonna have fun and and uh, if I get tapped by my friends, then hey, it, it happens, man. Like I, it's okay for me. I don't. I, it doesn't bother me anymore. At first though, it did bother me because oh, I felt like I was <laughs> I was going down. You know what I mean? Like I was like I was like fuck, man. My skills are sucking lately, and it's just it's just different, man. If I can only, if I can barely make it two times a week then i have to understand that my skill is going to be that of a person that can barely make it two times a week i'm not going to be you know the the 25 year old kid that goes four or five times a week and studies tape and everything like that and i just had I, I just it took me a little bit to realize that has to be my enjoyment part you yeah. know what i mean it's funny man like so. i look back at like like skating for me um you know i, I was I, I was able to travel the country and like skate professionally and um the the, the issue i had was i was the guy who would find the craziest, gnarliest thing and jump off of it, right? Like, uh, I would do only stunts, like just bonkers things. Uh, that's what I love to do. Other guys would have an amazing session on like a little tiny, like, you know, four inch tall rail. And they could do like the most technical, like beautiful tricks ever on that rail. And I hated it. Like, I just never found the love of that, right? And so the problem is now that I'm, you know, 40 years old, I can't do the stunts anymore, right? Like I, I, I'm broken. And so I've lost all love for skating because the thing I was good at, thing I loved the most, I can no longer do, right? And that relate that like, it's a direct relation to jujitsu. Like if all you can do is smash, there's gonna be a time when you're too old to smash. And then you're gonna fall out of love because you never loved the technique and never loved like the art of it, right? Like it was just about like hucking yourself on the biggest you know rail and and being cool on tv like so learning to understand that like there's going to be different levels of enjoyment like you said and there's different outcomes for enjoyment uh the guys who figure that out are going to have the longest career for sure well mike this was a great conversation john you got anything else uh i don't i'm loving the background i'm like i'm still jealous i'm looking at him like man you hear that seagull in the background we're having that good moment oh, like, no. enjoy that weather yes sir yeah it's, it's gonna make some great instagram reels it's gonna have like you know the 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 motivating music in the yes. background as like he's sitting on the beach it's gonna like, like scroll down right here it's like <laughs> i need the sun to glint off the rolex a little bit that's what i was really looking for <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. There we go. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Mike. If people want to follow you and and check out your YouTube and and see your whole journey and everything like that, your beautiful academy, by the way. I forgot awesome. to say, I freaking love the jujitsu on the wall. I think that is like pure classic and like great looking. So, where can people follow you at? Uh, Instagram is my primary source. That's going to be just Michael Courier BJJ on Instagram. Uh, it's also the exact same Michael Courier BJJ on YouTube. I'm terrible about posting YouTube stuff, but I do occasionally. Uh, I generally just stick to Instagram. Perfect. Well, thank you. So, oh, what's your academy? If people want to uh, check out your academy. Yeah, it's called Impact Jiu-Jitsu in Fountain Hill. Okay, perfect. Yep. So uh, that's everything we have today, guys. Thank you so much for listening and watching at home. And uh, remember, no oil checks here. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks. Thanks.